letter to the Romans, reading from chapter 2, verses 17 through 29. This is sermon number 10 in this series through Romans. Let us ask the Lord, whose spirit breathed out his holy and infallible and errant word, now to breathe upon us afresh that we might receive it as we ought in true faith. Let us pray. Almighty and everlasting Father of grace and truth and love and mercy and righteousness and justice, we come before you in the name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, and pray the blessing of your Holy Spirit to work supernaturally in our minds and our hearts, to awaken us to the realities of eternity, heaven, and hell, and our great need for salvation by grace through faith in your Son. And we pray, O Lord, that by your Spirit, so working in our hearts, we would live truly as your people, by faith, to the glory of your name. Amen. Romans chapter 2, and we are picking up midway in uh, a section uh, where we've been for the past few weeks, and uh, this is in that section known as the bad news, and now the Apostle Paul is turning his attention primarily to the, the Jewish audience and bringing them before the bar of God's justice, just as he has done with the Gentile audience as well. So we begin at verse 17. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then, who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. Or as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart. By the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. And now unto him who loves us, who has freed us from our sins by his blood, to Jesus Christ be all praise, honor, and glory forever. Amen.
Well, in the New Testament book known as 2 Peter, the second letter of Peter, the Apostle Peter wrote a rather remarkable statement which is a great encouragement to all of us who have ever had difficulty understanding certain passages of the Bible. Referring to the letters of Paul, to whom Peter refers as our beloved brother Paul, Peter says there are some things in his letters that are hard to understand. Well, that's good, isn't it? Paul's letter to the Romans contains some things that are, yes, hard to understand. And in particular, there are some things in today's passage which may be hard for us to understand, primarily and especially because we're not living in the same historical and cultural context as the first century Christians in Rome. As you as I read this passage, you, you, you might have wondered, what in the world does this mean and what does it mean for me? And if you did, that's okay. I want to assure you and show you that, in fact, this passage has a lot. It has everything to do with you, with your spiritual life, with your relationship with God through personal faith in Jesus Christ. This is a very relevant passage. But, but again, one of the reasons that it may be hard for you to understand, which is okay, is that we're all so far removed from the historical cultural context. At this point, you see in the earliest of Christianity, one of the controversies was, who are the people of God? What constitutes being a member of the people of God? You remember that God had chosen Old Testament Israel, Abraham and his descendants. He had given them his law through Moses. He had given them the prophets. And as he had spoken to them through Moses, he had chosen them from among all the nations of the earth to live in a special covenant relationship with his people, Old Testament Israel. But with the coming of Jesus Christ, the Messiah of Israel, there was a great change. The old covenant shifted to the new covenant. And now, through faith in Jesus Christ, Gentiles who had been cut off from the people of Israel, separated from the people of Israel for thousands of years, now were being brought in to the church of Jesus Christ through faith in Christ, and were being incorporated into the covenant people of God. It was a great controversy. And one of the first great doctrinal controversies of the first century, we read about it in various different places in the New Testament, one of the, the first great doctrinal controversies is, do these Gentile believers in Christ need to be circumcised? Do they need to receive the sign of the covenant? We don't deal with that issue. That's very foreign. That's one of the reasons why it may seem hard for you to connect to this passage. The other reason it's hard, perhaps, for you to understand this passage is that Paul is engaging in 
let us say, an imaginary debate. You know how you do that in your own mind when you imagine someone and you're going back and forth with them? Well, that's what Paul is doing right here. He is letting us hear through this letter. He's letting us overhear the kinds of debates that undoubtedly he had engaged in, in reality, in the synagogues when he had gone on his missionary journeys to various places preaching the gospel. Well, then the Jewish leaders of that community would come back at him with various objections to the gospel, and Paul would respond. And so now in this letter, in this section on the bad news, in which Paul is bringing all humanity, both Jew and Gentile, before the bar of God's justice and showing them that they, we all, are guilty without excuse and that the way of salvation can be only through faith in Jesus Christ, he is now at this point in Romans 2 engaging with, as it were, an imaginary Jewish leader who's objecting and who's having problems with this whole notion that Gentiles can become members of God's covenant people by faith in Christ without being circumcised. So that's the context, but we're going to move beyond that context, and I hope to show you how, yes, it's relevant. It's relevant to your life and my life. But remember, in terms of the bad news, this section of Romans that we're in, guilty without excuse, hopeless and helpless apart from the redeeming work of Jesus Christ. Paul's point is, as he says in chapter 1, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith For faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. He who through faith is righteous shall live. Paul's point, both to the Gentile and to the Jew, is that salvation comes not by our works, but only by the work of Jesus Christ. The same is true for us. Jesus Christ, by living a life of perfect obedience, by offering himself up as the perfect substitutionary sacrifice for sin, by conquering death through his resurrection, by securing our salvation by his ascension to the right hand of God the Father Almighty, he, Jesus Christ, has done once and for all all the work necessary for the salvation of otherwise helpless and hopeless sinners such as you and I. This is the gospel which the Apostle Paul loved to proclaim. And it's the gospel which we love to proclaim from this pulpit. Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone is the righteous one. And therefore, it is absolutely necessary that you and I repent of our sins and place our faith in Jesus Christ, accepting His work for us, receiving Him as our Lord and Savior, and by receiving Jesus Christ, we receive 
His righteousness. We receive His right standing with the Father, and therefore through faith in Christ we are justified, made right with God by faith in Him. By faith in Him alone, not by our works. That same gospel is the gospel of the first century, but in the first century, this gospel of salvation for Jew and Gentile, which the Apostle Paul proclaimed throughout his ministry, this gospel of justification by faith alone, in Christ alone, it created this controversy in the first century. As I've said, the Jews, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, had been chosen out of all the nations of the earth to live in this covenant relationship with God. God had given them the sign of this covenant. But in the first century, in the first century, Judaism had become corrupted and had fallen away from true faith in Yahweh. And the Jews of Paul's day were inclined to believe. Now we come to the point. Jews of Paul's day were inclined to believe that just because they had the sign of circumcision, just because they had the external mark, that that in and of itself was their guarantee of their justification before God, their right standing with God, their eternal salvation. They were in. They had the sign of God's covenant promise and therefore they assumed, they just assumed that they were right with God. Well, here at verse 17, Paul begins to address, again, this imaginary Jew who objects to Paul's gospel of justification by faith in Christ. An imaginary debate. And he's, uh, remember, remember that Paul himself was a Jew. And Paul, as he tells us later in the letter to the Romans, he loved his people. He prayed for his people. He agonized for his people, wanting them to come to Christ. So he is showing us this in chapter 2 for the sake of, of showing us the way of salvation for all people including the Jewish people. Paul begins by extolling the virtues of Judaism. Now, here's, here's where we're getting into the, the, uh, the imaginary conversation. This is how it goes. If you want to look in your Bible, that's good. Paul says, so you are a Jew. You rely on the law and boast in God. Yes, that's a good thing. You know His will and approve what is excellent because you're instructed from the law. Oh, yes. You see, the imaginary Jew would nod approvingly. Paul continues, And you are a guide to the blind, a light to those in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. And the imaginary Jew would nod approvingly. Yes, yes, yes. But it's all a setup. It's all a setup. Paul then turns to the imaginary Jew who thinks, now here's the key, the imaginary Jew who thinks so highly of his identity as a Jew, his ancestral identity, his uh, keeping, his carefulness to keep the works of the old covenant law and the, and, the, and the rituals, including that of circumcision, Paul then begins to expose the reality of his sin and hypocrisy. Well then, while you preach against stealing, 
do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. Now Paul's point here is simply that Jews, no less than the Gentiles, are guilty of breaking God's moral law even though they are the ones to whom God's moral law was specially revealed and given at Mount Sinai. They were given the law. And yet, they break it. And they are therefore all the more culpable. Even if they are not committing theft and adultery and murder in the literal physical sense, Paul says that they are, just as Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, they are guilty of these same sins in a spiritual, inward manner of the heart. Paul's point is simply this. Even though the the Jewish community had all of the external signs and blessings of being God's old covenant people, there was still something wrong with their heart. And because there was something wrong with their heart, their law-keeping was not perfect. And because their law-keeping was not perfect, their imperfect law-keeping was of no avail in justifying them before God. And because their imperfect law-keeping was of no avail in justifying them before God, their sign of circumcision was really of no value in their relationship with God. Paul is simply just leveling it. Leveling the playing field, as it were. Showing the Jews, the Jewish community, that before God they are really on the same level as the Gentiles. Now that would have been a horrific thought. That would have been a disgusting thought for Jews in the first century. But but this is what Paul says in verse 25. Circumcision is indeed of value if you obey the law. If you keep every aspect of the law perfectly, good. Your circumcision means something. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. In other words, Paul says to the imaginary Jew, you are really in no better a position with God than the uncircumcised Gentile. Now that that would have been an inflammatory comment. But that's the historical setting. Again, Paul's point here is for the sake of the salvation of his Jewish brothers. And by the way, this kind of confrontation with external Judaism was not something that began with Paul. He didn't think it up. For example, when John the Baptist began his ministry, the leaders of the Jewish people, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the representatives of first century Judaism. They came out to John for his baptism. And do you know what he said? (laughs) He said to them, the upstanding leaders of the Jewish community, John the Baptist said, you brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Listen, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And listen, Do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, 
God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. You see, presuming upon their identity, their heritage, and their external keeping of the law to some degree. You see, even then John the Baptist was warning the Jewish people not to trust in their external identity as descendants of Abraham. By saying that God is able to raise up children from Abraham from these stones, John the Baptist was in effect saying that God could make new children for Abraham who were not his descendants, meaning the Gentiles. It wasn't only John the Baptist who challenged the Jews' trust in their external identity. Do you remember that when Jesus met with Nicodemus, Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council, at the highest level of Jewish culture, Jesus told Nicodemus, now listen to these words in this context, truly, truly, I say to you, you must be Born again. In other words, Nicodemus, your birth as a descendant of Abraham and the external sign of circumcision which you bear because of your birth, that's not sufficient for you to enter the kingdom of God. You must be born again. This is essentially the same point that Paul is making in this passage from Romans 2. It is not enough, he says, to be born a Jew and to to bear the sign of circumcision. External identity, external religion is of no avail. And he concludes his argument by saying it all comes to its crescendo Verses 28-29, when he says, this is the point, No one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not the letter. His praise is from God. In this passage, Paul is redefining who the true Jew is and what true circumcision is. He's saying it's not a matter of genealogical identity. It's not a matter of an external sign. Circumcision of the heart, the cutting of the heart by the Holy Spirit, says Paul, is what really matters. And circumcision of the heart was not a new idea invented by Paul. It comes straight out of the Old Testament as well. After the exodus from Egypt, after the giving of the Ten Commandments, Moses preached to the Old Testament Israelites saying, And now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all His ways, to love Him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord which I am commanding you today for your good. 
The Lord set his, love, set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them. You above all peoples, as you are this day. Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. Moses preached to the Israelites. God has set His love upon you. God has called you to love Him and to serve Him and to walk in His ways. Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart. Even then, during the time of Moses, what it really meant to belong to the people of God was not an external sign, but an internal reality. Not circumcision of the flesh, but circumcision of the heart. And circumcision of the heart is a matter of being cut to the quick of our inmost being. What does that mean? Be no longer stubborn. It means repentance for our sins. It means humility before God. It means having a heart that is changed. A heart that is tender toward God. A heart that is willing and wanting to live a life pleasing to God. Loving Him, serving Him, walking in His ways. It's the redirection of our lives. True circumcision is a matter of the heart. True repentance. Love for God. True faith. True faith by the working of the Holy Spirit. And the outward sign without the inward reality is of no value. The circumcision of our hearts, the circumcision of our hearts, is the work of the Holy Spirit through the gospel of Jesus Christ, convicting us. Of our sins. Being cut to the quick. Showing us our need of forgiveness. Leading us to Jesus Christ our Savior. Enabling us to embrace Him in true faith. The the circumcision of our hearts involves... Everything about our salvation. Regeneration. New birth. Conversion. Being drawn to Jesus Christ and united to Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. It has everything to do with our lives because it is the work of the Holy Spirit to bring us to Christ in repentance and faith. Now, let's make the connection from the first century to the 21st century. Here's your practical application. In the Old Covenant, circumcision was the sign of the covenant. In the New Covenant, through Jesus Christ, baptism is the sign of the covenant, belonging to the corporate, visible people of God, the church of Jesus Christ. Partaking of the Lord's Supper, the covenant meal, is an act whereby we publicly profess to be members of God's new covenant people through faith in Jesus Christ.
But the outward signs of baptism and participation in the Lord's Supper are of no value without the inward reality. Were you born into a Christian home? That's a wonderful blessing. You were baptized. The promises of God were laid upon your life, literally. That's a wonderful blessing. Have you grown up in the life of the church, in the fellowship of God's people? What a wonderful blessing. You today, a communing member of the church of Jesus Christ? That is good and right. But are you trusting in those external things? Are those external things simply part of your Christian identity in the culture in which we live? Because if there's no inward reality, no true repentance from sin, no genuine desire to live a life more and more pleasing to God in accordance with His Word, and I don't mean a perfectly sinless life. The Christian life is difficult. I fail every day. That's not the point. But it's the trajectory of your life that you endeavor to follow Jesus Christ. And when you fail, you are sorry. And you care about it. If there is no love for His Word, no real love for His church and His people, no desire to grow in grace, No concern for His kingdom. His kingdom around the world. Then all the outward signs and the outward blessings, listen, all the outward signs and all the outward blessings of of being identified with the Christian community only increase the judgment upon you. This was Paul's point to the Jews of the first century. The principle applies in a relevant way to professing Christians today. If your Christian identity is merely external and there is no internal reality, then all the externals of your religious identity will do you no good in relationship with God. They may do you good in terms of society. They may do you good in you know, helping you keep your life out of a ditch or something like that. But they do no good in terms of your standing with God. So, here we are. And today, we are invited to come and to partake of the body and blood of Christ crucified for us. The good news is that Jesus Christ came into the world precisely because we need to have our hearts circumcised. Now think about this. He was born into the world in our human flesh and blood so that we might be born again by His Spirit. And His body was circumcised. Paul says in his letter to the Colossians, 
Yes, the circumcision of Christ, when he was circumcised, cut on the cross. And his blood was shed so that our sins might be forgiven. And his Holy Spirit has been poured out from heaven so that our hearts might be circumcised by the Spirit through the preaching of the gospel even now so that our lives might be changed from within and we might be set free from the power of sin and our hearts might truly be changed to love the Lord our God, to serve Him, to walk in His ways and to love our neighbor as ourselves. And this is the reason. You see, the bad news always comes around to the good news. This is the reason that the Apostle Paul said, and let us all say, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Amen. Let us pray. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the glorious gospel of your Son, Jesus Christ. And we thank you that you have not left us to ourselves, but you have given to us a Savior. And through Him you have poured out your Spirit. And by your Spirit you have given to us your Word. And so we pray for the divine and supernatural blessing that our hearts might bleed in true repentance and run to Jesus Christ, our Savior. In His name we pray. Amen. In response to the gospel of Jesus Christ, let us stand to affirm our faith. One of the ancient creeds of the church, it focuses on the divine nature of Jesus Christ. and Therefore, we often say it during this time of the year. Christian, in whom do you believe? We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of His Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. And the third day he rose again according to the scriptures and ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. And he shall come again with glory to judge both the living and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. And we believe in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and we look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen.
the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be. be seated. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not for ourselves alone, but for all nations. That is the Great Commission. To that end, I would now invite Susan Gordon to come forward to speak to us about a special course that's going to be offered uh, in the new year. Susan, you may come. And come on up here to the pulpit so everybody can see you well. Um, Susan's so going to tell you about a, uh, the course entitled Perspectives. Let me tell you that I personally endorse it. Uh, the church I previously served in Virginia was greatly blessed because we had many members who had taken this course and then had infused our local congregation with a zeal for world missions. And that's what this is about. And I'll let Susan really tell you about it. Uh, speaking with uh, Pastor John, he said, you have five minutes. Um, <laughs> Margaret or Mike McGinnis are here, and they've been in my Sunday school class for a few years, and they know I don't say a whole lot in just five minutes. But I jotted down some notes. I want to tell you the facts about perspectives first, and then I want to give you just a short little testimony about what perspectives has done for me. Perspectives is a 15-week course. It's not a Bible study per se. It is a study of the movement of God, both in the past and in the present, what he's done, what he's doing now. And it's 15 weeks of amazing information. Every week, there's a different speaker. They come from all over the United States. And we um, are doing this class again in the spring. I took it this past spring. It was an amazing journey. It is one journey that changed my life. It changed the way I read my Bible. It changed the way I pray. And more importantly, it changed the way I look into the faces of people made into the image of God that don't know him yet. Um, So after going through it for 15 weeks with 81 other people in our community, representing 13 different churches, all denominations, I began not too long into that journey to realize that God didn't just want me to know his name. He wanted me to know him in a way that I stood amazed at him. And I stood amazed at him in such a way that it would move me to do the impossible things that I did not think could be accomplished unless he did it. And that has begun to happen in my own life. Um... 15 weeks, the cost of the course is $275. You will read out of a textbook that is comprised of 152 authors that have a combined 5,000 years of experience, global experience, and they've written 136 articles that you'll read some of those articles and hear their amazing stories. The second night of our class, This past spring, we had a man named Brian Jameson. He does work among the Muslim world. And that night, he told us how he reaches the Muslim people with their own book, with their Quran. And we sat amazed at what God is able to do 
Like I said, the course is $275. If you register before December 19th, you'll get a $25 uh, reduction in that price. Um, lost my train of thought. Um, you can take the course three different ways. You can take it as a reader only, you can take it for a certificate, and you can take it at the college and seminary level. So it's that caliber of a course. One of the things that um, I learned in perspectives, one of the major takeaways I took from it, they have one of the classes that talks about redemptive analogies. And what that is is how God has placed in every culture every culture across the world, something that he has placed eternally in their heart that gives them an eternal perspective. One of the people that they talked about in the course was a tribe called the Salway tribe, and they are people in New Guinea. This missionary couple uh, went to them. These people, the Salway tribe, were headhunting cannibals. They had a custom of making friends with their neighboring enemy tribes, to get close enough to them only when they gain their trust to kill and eat them. And these missionaries sat and watched that time after time wondering how can we show them who Jesus is. And one day they saw a custom, another custom that this tribe held, that when they truly did want to make peace with an enemy tribe, they had a custom of offering a peace child. That was taking one of their children and offering it to the enemy tribe to raise for the duration of that child's life. And as long as that child lived, there would be peace between those enemy tribes. When the missionaries saw that, they saw how they could tell them about a God who offered his peace child to a world that was enemies with him. And it wasn't just one of his children. It was his only child. And God offered Jesus to us while we were still enemies. And that child lives forever, and because of him, we can have peace with our Creator. When I read that story, I stood amazed at a God that cared enough about a head-hunting cannibal tribe to place something in, his, in their hearts that somebody could come along and tell them, this is who Jesus is, this is who he looks like. Um, let's see what else I can tell you. The $275 covers the cost of your books. It pays for the traveling expenses of the speaker. We have some of the best speakers around the nation coming to us in January. The class starts January 16th. It'll go to May 1st. And I know that sounds overwhelming, but all I'm asking you to do is put your yes on the table and pray. Ask God if this is something that he wants you to do. You're not too old. We had a lady in our class that was a 91, and she took the class. She endured the whole 15 weeks. But ask the Lord, is this something that you want me to do? And if it is, you can go to perspectives.org, click on the spring class for Northeast Louisiana, you can go there and register. You can also go there and see the first two lessons free. You can also see our lineup, lineup of speakers and all their bios so you can kind of get a taste of what you're in for. You can also come to the first two sessions free. The first Monday night and the second Monday night, you can come and just taste and see 
what it's about, and then you can sign up. One uh, statement that has been made about this course and one takeaway that I came away from it saying, and multiple people did, is why am I just now hearing about this? The course has been around since 1974, and I don't know why God waited till I was 60 to let me hear about it, but for some reason he did. But now you're hearing about it. Ask the Lord, is this something that you want me to do? And just listen to what he says. Thank you, Pastor John. Thank you very much. And Susan, I'm going to ask you and Tim, if you'll just come after the service and be up here in front of the pulpit, if you folks want to speak to Susan uh, more specifically, and we'll have also some some literature uh, for you as well. listed in the bulletin. While we're thinking about world mission, uh, I have an update on Andrew Brunson. I ask you, I know that you have been in prayer for him uh, as he has been in prison in Turkey. Uh, Tomorrow marks the 60th day that he is in prison. Uh, That is 30 days past the legal amount of time that uh, someone can be in prison in Turkey without having charges filed against them. Uh, This week, uh, we, there's going to be a high-ranking U.S. official meeting with uh, some high-ranking Turkish officials to discuss uh, Andrew's case and hopefully uh, plead for his release. So uh, please be especially in prayer for him uh, this week as those meetings occur and uh, pray that the result would be his release, that he might uh, come back to the United States for Christmas. I uh, encourage you to continue to pray for Al Miller, who is at home now. Uh, He's here this morning. I just saw him. Uh, you're back in the back and hidden. I can't see you. There you are. We're glad that you are uh, continuing to recover, Al, uh, and we uh, will continue to pray for you as you continue to recover. Um, pray for Mike Houston, who met with doctors this next week and awaits uh, word on treatment. We extend, uh, continue to extend our Christian sympathies to the Norris family uh, on Steve's death. Uh, two weeks ago, continue to pray for, for Debbie and uh their daughters, uh, and we also this morning extend our Christian sympathy to Amy Gibbler on the loss of her mother this past Thursday. Um, I know that Amy is heading up to Rhode Island, so uh, not only pray for peace and comfort for Amy and Don and the entire uh, family, but also uh, for safe travels as they uh, travel up north. Now as we uh, prepare to receive this morning's tithes and offerings, uh, I encourage you to think on all that God has given us. Every good and perfect gift has come from our Father above. Let us return a portion of that uh, to the Lord that his kingdom might be expanded. And as we do that, let us offer ourselves as living sacrifices before the Lord.
O God, who by the blood of your dear Son has consecrated for us a new and living way into the holiest place above all, cleanse our minds and the secrets of our hearts by the blood of Christ, that drawing near to you with a pure heart and conscience undefiled, we may receive these your gifts without sin and worthily magnify your holy name through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. You may be seated. Dearly beloved, hear the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall no longer hunger. And whoever believes in me shall no longer thirst. On the night that our our Lord Jesus Christ was betrayed and arrested, he shared the Passover meal with his disciples, the meal of the covenant. It was here that he instituted the sacrament of the Lord's Supper in order that his followers every time they would share this meal together, would remember and give thanks that Jesus, the spotless Lamb of God, had been offered as a one eternal sacrifice for our sins on Calvary's cross. He is our perpetual Passover meal. And this is the meal of the covenant. This is not merely a meal of remembrance. Through this meal we are bound to Jesus Christ. He invites us unworthy sinners to come and feed on him in our hearts by faith. And as we feast on him, our heavenly food, we experience God's grace. We are forgiven of our sins. We are nourished in our faith. We are strengthened that we might participate in God's redemptive work in the world until Christ again. Until he comes and gathers from the ends of the earth all of God's people. That they might sit around the Lord's banquet table together in his kingdom. In this way, these elements, the bread and the cup, which represent the body and the blood of Christ, are a visible sermon to us. They are the gospel in tangible form. They reveal the love of God for us. Jesus invites all who have heartfelt repentance, who have been baptized by the Holy Spirit to come and to enjoy this meal in faith. Let us pray. (laughs) Heavenly Father, we glorify you and give you thanks. For you alone are God, living and true, dwelling in light, inaccessible from before time and forever. Fountain of all life and source of all goodness, you made all things and filled them with your blessing. You created them to rejoice in the splendor of your radiance. Countless throngs of angels stand before you to serve you night and day, and beholding the glory of your presence, they offer you unceasing praise. We acclaim you, holy God, glorious in power. Your mighty works reveal your wisdom and love. You formed us 
in your own image, giving the whole world into our care so that in obedience to you, our creator, we might rule and serve all your creatures. When our disobedience took us far from you, you did not abandon us to the power of death, but in your mercy, you came to our help so that in seeking you, we might find you. Again and again, you called us into covenant with yourself and through the prophets, you taught us to hope for salvation. Almighty God, you so love the world that in the fullness of time, you sent your only son to be our savior. Incarnate by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, he lived as one of us, yet was without sin. To the poor, he proclaimed the good news of salvation, to the prisoners, freedom, to the sorrowful joy, and to fulfill your purpose. He gave himself up to death and rising from the grave, destroyed death and made the whole creation new. And that we might no longer live for ourselves, but for him who died and rose for us. You sent the Holy Spirit, your first gift for all who believe, to complete your work in the world and to bring the fullness of your kingdom and the sanctification of your people. Holy God, we now celebrate this memorial of our redemption, recalling Christ's death and descent among the dead, proclaiming his resurrection and ascension to your right hand, awaiting his coming in glory and offering to you from the gifts you have given to us this bread and this cup. We praise you and we bless you. Send your Holy Spirit upon us, we pray, that the sharing of this bread that we break and the cup that we bless may be for us the communion of the body and blood of Christ. Grant that being joined together in him, we may attain to the unity of the faith. Grow up in all things into Christ our Lord and reflect his glory. And as this grain has been gathered from many fields into one loaf, and these grapes from many hills into one cup, grant, O Lord, that your whole church may soon be gathered from the ends of the earth into your everlasting kingdom. Until that day comes, we give you thanks for all the saints in times and places who have gone before us and endured affliction and suffering and tribulation. We praise you for calling your people together, making them holy, filling them with your Holy Spirit giving them faith and steadfast hope in you, blessing them with gifts to truly be your church and sustaining them through life that they may be glorified in your kingdom. Father, we pray that in your great love and mercy that you would heal the sick, that you would bind up the brokenhearted, that you would comfort those who mourn, that you would give peace to the distressed. We pray especially this day for Mike Houston, for Al Miller, for Andrew Brenson, for Amy Givler and her family. Lord, we pray that you would heal the sick, that you would comfort those who mourn, Lord, that you would secure Andrew's release. We pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ, who is the bread of life and who taught us to pray together, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. The Lord Jesus Christ, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread. And after giving thanks to God, he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples, saying, Take, eat, this is my body. Given for you, do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup, saying, 
This cup is the new covenant sealed in my blood, shed for you for the forgiveness of your sins. Whenever you drink of it, do this in remembrance of me. For every time you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the saving death of our Lord Jesus Christ until he comes again. Dearly beloved, let us keep the feast. body of Christ broken for you. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. The blood of Christ shed for you.
In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, full of grace and truth. Let us pray. Almighty and everlasting God, we give you great thanks for your love and mercy, which has redeemed us from our sins through the blood of your Son, Jesus Christ, and for the power of his resurrection by which In union with Him, through faith, we receive life everlasting. For His ascension into heaven, whereby, through union with Him by faith, we too are seated with Him in the heavenly places. We thank You for these promises confirmed at this table. And we look forward with eager expectation to the glorious appearing of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To the glory of your name, amen.
grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.